Hello, gorgeous listeners. This is Lo, and welcome to a brand new episode of I Love Wellness. Thanks for joining me today on the show. We have somebody who's majorly impressive. I have a serious lady crush on her. Um, she smells really good. <laughs> Please welcome Sarah Riff, who is the global entertainment director for Jimmy Choo, to the show. Thank you. I'm my so studio audience clap. Oh. I always have my. Very sarny. Everyone claps. It's us. We're really excited to have you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Um, So how long have you been at Jimmy Choo for? Did you wear them today? They're over there. I certainly did. They're very cute. I'm taking them off now. Good. Get comfy. So that I can get a little bit cozy with you. Get Um, comfy cozy. But I have been there for 12 years. Wow. Yes. That is amazing. Most people don't stay anywhere for two years. I know. So it's like whenever I tell people that I'm still there, they're like, that's amazing for you. But there's also a look of skepticism. No, I don't think so. I think it's really um, remarkable and says something about your character and probably just the quality of the workplace environment. I have to imagine that it's a great place to work if you've been there for that long. It really is. I have to say, you know, when I joined, it was um, it was actually a much smaller business at the time Mm -hmm. and being part of the journey of seeing it develop into what it is today has been really rewarding. And, you know, I'm sort of satellite in my position here on the West Coast, but um, because we're headquartered out of New York and London, Mm -hmm. but it's really, it's been a fun journey. Yeah. So what, what was your role when you first started there? My role when I first started was West Coast Director of Entertainment. Okay. And what does that mean exactly? Because it's a shoe company. So what? So, you know, I'd like to say it's it's, um, (laughs) it's a lifestyle accessories brand, a global accessories brand, but it's everything from, you know, celebrity and VIP Mm -hmm. to product placement, events, booking people for um, campaigns, you know, it's kind of the gamut. And that's what has really kept my interest for so long is because every day is different. Sarah, you have the fun job. I really kind of do have the fun job. It's true. <laughs> it sounds like you have the fun job. It, and and has, the shoes don't hurt, you know? Yeah. I love that. The perks don't hurt. Um, So I have been told mm-hmm. that you are the most put together lady, like in the history of ladies. What, what lady told you this? A few. Hmm. One's right there, but more than one. Um, you have this amazing style, you have this amazing presence, this amazing warmth, you're married, you have two kids, you have this great job. And so it seems like from the outside you have it all, but I'm sure that can't be the case or how you feel, right? (laughs) You know what? I think that it's, everybody kind of puts on their armor every day to, Mm -hmm. to, you know, to create a sense that like, we've got it all together. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and I definitely feel really blessed. I have a great family. Um, and I love my job and, you know, most of the days I love my husband too, but, um, you know, everybody's just doing their best and, um, you know, I don't know that there's any such thing as having it all. Yeah. I mean, I think, especially we live in this like age of Instagram where people, um, have literally developed entirely different personas for themselves totally <laughs> and you know present present that to the world um because it's the where their comfort zone is you know but i think we also live in this interesting space lately where people are willing to be much more vulnerable mm-hmm. and say like hey this is who i am this is you know i have this problem even though like i look perfect on the internet um you know i struggle also and you know these are the things that i'm dealing with and just in sort of like an interesting way i'm almost starting to like not buy into that stuff either 
you know, because like everybody has problems and I don't know, at some point, can't we just like democratize everybody's problems? I'm sort of going off on a tangent right now, but no, I, I guess like I'm just cu- sort of curious as to your thoughts on that because you literally sit in this entertainment position mm-hmm. where um, you're working with actresses and you guys are hiring people. And I guess like when you think about sort of like the landscape of culture, how, how does it apply to your job at Jimmy Choo and sort of like how do you... I don't know, you sort of have to be responsible in a lot of ways in terms of like the messaging of the brand and, and, and what you're putting out into the world. And so how do you guys sort of think about that? You know, as far as me personally, I think it's twofold. I think if you're, you know, if you're working with actresses who are putting together, you know, red carpet looks for promoting a film, they obviously want to look their best and mm-hmm. they're really there selling a product, right? So they're selling the product of the film and they're selling also the product of who they are Um, as a commodity and as an actress and you realize and recognize the power that fashion has taken over the last you know few years where I think that you can really create a career out of looking a certain way you Mm -hmm. know I think that it's the calling card for a lot of these girls right you know being an actress is a really hard job in terms of the fact that there aren't that many jobs so obviously you have people who are enormous talents, but you recognize through working with stylists that you're kind of crafting an identity for these girls. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously through my work, it's fun to play a part in that where you see somebody is going to be known, you know, sort of as like a rule breaker or someone who's really classic or someone, you know, who creates an identity for themselves in the way that they present themselves on a red carpet. Um, I think as far as social media goes and, you know, democratizing people's happiness and upset and problems. I think that, you know, social media is like such a double-edged sword. I think that it's incredible for connecting with people and being um, exposed to things that you may not have known about, you know, whether that's music or culture or art or, you know, just people that inspire you in whatever way. But to your point, I think that you know, we all participate a little bit in this fallacy, right? Mm -hmm. By posting the moments where you feel like you look your best or, you know, maybe being a little bit like too happy with the Facetune app or whatever it is, you (laughs) know? It's so funny, like when you run into people and you're like, you don't look at all like you look (laughs) on your post. But I I understand that. It's also like you're like the master of your domain, right? So Mm -hmm. you can really like, you can present yourself in whatever way you want. And I think that, you know, that's totally personal. Like there are people who are showing like moments where you're like, "Uh, you know what? Like I don't necessarily like need to see that. And then other people where it feels so manufactured all the time, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that for me personally, um, I just probably, you know, am a little bit of both, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I guess for me, I'm exhausted on living on of, on like two sides of the spectrum. Either mm-hmm. like everything looks perfect and it's like shiny and new and fit and whatever. Mm-hmm. Or it's, you know, oh, I have all of these problems. And, you know, um, I, I'm just sort of worried like, we're either obsessed with perfection or we're all just hypochondriacs at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Cause like it, it's, everybody has problems, but like not everybody has an anxiety disorder. You know what I mean? And I think to a certain degree, um, you know, 
it, there's just this cultural shift where, you know, there's been the spotlight put on all of these amazing things that like need to be talked about. And I think, um, the fashion industry and the beauty industry is doing a really good job of, um, having these, um, inclusionary conversations. But I guess sometimes I just wonder like what is taking it too far and like what's too much to a certain degree. Um, I guess when it comes to you and who you are, like what is your identity? Because you talk about, you know, these actresses and sort of like building their identities for them or like their public personas. And so I guess for you, um, with somebody that has had so much success, like how do you think of yourself on like a day-to-day basis? And like, how do you want to present yourself to the world? All of a sudden, Hmm. As far as how I think of myself, I think for me, my priority, um, you know, in terms of where I put my value system is really for me, my family first. Mm -hmm. And I have a good sense of what matters to me, you know, and so that's sort of the compass that I use to steer all the decisions that I make, Mm -hmm. what's going to be good for my sense of self, what's going to be good for me as a mother and as a wife and for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that really, that really guides who I am because I want to, first and foremost, be a really present mom mm-hmm. to my kids. And I want to be someone that they look up to, you know, and who really like is going to make mistakes like everybody else, but who is where she says she's going to be when she says she's going to be there. And someone who is reliable, you know? Mm-hmm. And whose word matters. So I think that like, you know, they always say like, oh, you know, people learn things not by telling them what to do, but by showing them. So I really try to show up for my kids. I try to show up for my friends and for also for causes that are important to me and to show my kids that, you know, like the world is so much bigger than just us. And we're really all so fortunate. So, you know, like the hypochondriacal thing, I do think like we're all so in our own heads and like up our own butts about like, you know. what do we feel and, you know, and everything all of the time. And I Mm -hmm. think you have to look outside of yourself sometimes and recognize that there's so many people who, you know, who need us to get involved and need us to fight for them in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I really am trying to teach my kids early on, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's something that, I mean, like, it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot because, you know, I've had anxiety, I've had depression and I've had these years where I have been so focused on myself because you're sick. And so you have to be, Mm -hmm. you, you can't, um, take care of other people in the way that you could, if you were just like a healthy person. And, um, I don't know, for me, I'm just like sick of feeling sorry for myself all the time. So I just made the decision like a year ago to just stop feeling sorry for myself. And my life has changed drastically since then. But um, I don't know, it's just something that I think is interesting. So do you think that you have been really successful in your job because you put a primary focus on like the quality of your personal relationships? I ask you this because I read a really interesting article in the New York Times that was like, you know, we're so successful in our careers, but it's not really making us happy. And like, what does make us happy is our family. Was this the one about the double tiered effect about everyone who had sort of gotten to the top of the mountain and then basically decided that they wanted to totally 
like abandon their life and realize that it doesn't fulfill them in any way. So mm-hmm. therefore they want to turn to philanthropic. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the concept is the same. I right. don't know if it was that, uh, that exact article, um, but sort of like the theory is, you know, we have all of this success mm-hmm. and it's not really like making us happy and not making us feel fulfilled. And at the end of the day, it's like about like our husbands and our kids, you know, those that's where like the true happiness comes from. And do you feel like you are able to continue to be so successful in your job because you have this really solid like home base that is a priority for you? I I don't know that I would say that that's what makes me successful at my job. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I know obviously sort of the idea of the article that you read. And I think that happiness is its own journey. And I think that what will constitute happiness or success is different for every single person. Mm -hmm. So I realized that for me, there's multi-constructs of what makes up my identity. So it's about doing things that first and foremost make me feel good about myself. And like I said, that's, you know, whether or not that's helping to give back in some way, doing something for my family, um, you know, taking care of myself, I think that that's sort of like the, um, that is the foundation for what's going to make me feel like a full person, Mm -hmm. sort of what you were speaking to about, you didn't want to feel sorry for yourself anymore. I think that I don't want to go through the like happiness is a choice thing, but I do think that mind over matter is so important. I Mm -hmm. think that the things that we give our energy to really take tremendous power over us, you know, and sometimes, and I fall down this rabbit hole so often, but, you know, if you're feeling not good or if you're worried about something, I tend to put all of my energy there subconsciously. Mm -hmm. And what I realize is that in moments where I'm really busy with something else and I'm not thinking about that, that issue isn't bothering me to the same degree as it was when I was putting all of my focus there, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, sorry, I got off topic now, but, um, no, I think it's about like a conscious choice, right? It's about like, I'm consciously choosing happiness or I'm constant consciously choosing to put this aside for the time being Mm -hmm. and to put my energy somewhere else. Um, I mean, like it is a practice that I am learning how to do and actually getting pretty good at with work specifically, you know, we're going through this process where, you know, we're making team changes and we're fundraising and, you know, there's just so much high level stuff going Mm on and balancing four really important things every day. And it literally changes every day. And I have gotten really good at figuring out where to put my energy and how to better use my time. Because when I was younger, I would allow things that really like seemingly in the grand scheme of things are not that big a deal because I've really learned that every problem does have a solution. And I think that's sort of like the like my biggest understanding now is that no matter what, every problem does have a solution. And so there's no, um, it's not worth it to like lose your fucking shit over, you know, a crazy email that you got from somebody. It's just not the end of the world. (laughs) And I think every woman who is in a position of power, you know, in their career probably has learned the same lesson because I don't think you get very far when you allow yourself to respond emotionally to stuff that you just have to, learn how to manage. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And I think that when you say every problem has a solution, I think that that's a great way to approach, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to accomplish anything. I think that there are a lot of people who are super reactive. And I, 
I realize I don't like to work with those people because they cause a lot of unnecessary stress yes. that never once contributes to the solving of the issue at hand. Never contributes to the solution. <laughs> Ever. And I can't stand people who just like blow up at the smallest things because number one, I always think it's like there's a time and a place where you're really going to have to like buckle down and figure it out. (laughs) And now it's not that time, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think it's like if you can keep in mind that like you're competent, you got all of the tools that you need, you're going to be able to figure it out. You just need to like keep your cool because sometimes that dictates the the way that the whole thing ends up anyways, you Mm know, or if it's going to, if it's all going to blow up, you know, you may as well like maintain a little dignity through the whole thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, like land the plane, you know? Yeah. But there's so many people who just lose their shit immediately and it ends up being worse than the problem, you know? Yes, completely agree. I agree with you. I, I don't operate very well with people who are like that. But I think that I think that having things that bring you happiness mm-hmm. outside of work helps to temper your response to certain things because you understand that it's not it's ultimately it's not life or death, mm-hmm. you know, thank God. Yeah. And really we have to put it into perspective because you know, it it is what it is and you will give it your all and you will do everything that you need to do to come to a solution, but you know, freaking out is not going to get you there any faster. Yeah, absolutely. I'm learning how to be a stoic. Ooh. It's a Roman philosophy and it's about approaching everything with virtue and tranquility mm-hmm. and like essentially not losing your shit over the little things, you know, um, and allowing you yourself to put energy into the things that like make you happy and make you feel fulfilled and don't put too much energy into the things that like are the problems and that create stress because it's just really not getting you very far. And I think in a roundabout way is there is a solution to every problem right totally and i always loved the quote that it's no matter where you go there you are Mm. and i think that like what you're saying about happiness is i think too often in in our culture we put happiness right around the next bend like oh my god as soon as i get the next promotion as soon as i get the bigger house as soon as i get that flossier car as soon as i get you know more instagram followers whatever it is i think that people are always delaying joy and delaying happiness and I think if you can focus on recognizing that like you have everything right now that you need to be happy and no matter like there's there are caps you know they have done studies that there was some study I think it was like at like $75,000 like above and beyond that like no one is happier mm-hmm. first of all I call bullshit on that study I, I mean that's on that crazy <laughs> but I do think that there is there is a lot of truth to that it's like a lot of the people I know who have been afforded like the most incredible lives um, are the most unhappy, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that sometimes it, it goes with maybe it's something that has been handed to them that they yeah. never worked for. And mm-hmm. therefore there's like a, a sense of lacking within themselves or, you know, it's something that they're doing that they're making a lot of money, but they're not happy or, you know, whatever it is. I think you just have to pursue the things that give you joy. And whether that's professionally or personally, you have to lean into those things because you're always going to have to make enough money to pay for your mortgage and pay for your car. But you also want to lean into the things that make you happy and, you know, make your heart sore in the way that 
those things maybe don't. Yeah, absolutely. I have to imagine that you have a really interesting perspective just because of the industry that you're in and the people that you are working with every day on sort of like the real like happiness factor, you know? So it's just your insight. I, I appreciate it. For no, sure. I appreciate that. And I, I think it's always really nice to see people who, you know, you look at and like from the outside and I've met so many people who have all of the markings of like huge success mm-hmm. and they're just as insecure as you and I are. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if not more so. And it doesn't add up because you're like, are you looking in the same mirror that yeah, I'm looking like, in? You because have everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can't validate this for you right now. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But like at the same time, it's like at the end of the day, the experience is all human. Like we are all looking at ourselves and like wishing we were more or less or whatever of Mm -hmm. something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I want to shift the focus a little bit um, and talk about your experience with VBAC because you brought it up before we started recording Mm -hmm. and I had no idea what you were talking about, but I did when you explained it to me. I was like, oh yeah, I've heard about that. Um, But before we get into that, we do a tiny segment on the show called Secret Wellness Ritual. And it's the thing that you do for yourself that's not traditionally wellness like maybe it's not like oh I go to the gym every day it's like the secret thing that you do that makes you feel really nice and like cozy and like happy so spill your secret oh my god um (laughs) well here's one thing I will say about having two kids and a husband like there's very little that you can do in secret do you know what I mean much less go to the bathroom like (laughs) I would love to to have the time to do anything that was secret um okay Having said that, what is something that, I mean, for me, things that make me feel really good are like, I love going to a dance class. Like I love like getting like hopped up in the, you know, like I'm just like in my mind, I'm like on stage with Beyonce and, you know, and I'm like losing myself in the euphoria (laughs) of it. Yeah. Um, Beyond that, like taking a bath or, Mm. you know, like just shutting all the doors and trying to take a bath for 20 minutes is always very, that's not like an odd wellness ritual. No, but I think it's important. Like bathing is an important, I mean, I sometimes take two baths a day. (laughs) Did you ever have that book? There's a kid's book that's called Five Minutes Peace. No. And it's (laughs) this big, it's like six by six, it's a square. And my mom read it to us all the time. And it's about this um, mom who's an elephant mom and her like elephant babies. And all she wants is five minutes peace. I should give that to my kids. Yes. And so, you know, she like tries to take a nap. She like tries to take a bath. (laughs) It's just, you know, it's a children's book but it goes on and on and so I'll send you the link yes please do I would love five minutes piece <laughs> yes because you need to develop a secret wellness ritual I know I mean what what are the other people's secrets I mean truly I really for me I, I tell this to everybody but mm-hmm. like I like to eat pizza once a week Mm-hmm. It makes me happy. You know, I think people are applying sort of different things that make them feel good and sort of um, those become their rituals. Do you know what I mean? Like people think about, you know, like Bob Dylan is my religion. Well, you know, eating pizza once a week and giving myself a break, like that's my secret wellness ritual. Right. Okay. So for, in so in, in that vein, then it would probably be more like spaghetti and iced tea. <gasps> Together? Not together. Spaghetti in your iced tea? No, not together. <laughs> iced, iced tea like throughout the day mm. as a constant. Do you drink coffee? I hadn't drank coffee for a really long time and my husband got me hooked on Blue Bottle like to my biggest chagrin because There's now- There's some in the fridge here. Oh, really? Well, I don't drink cold <laughs> brew, you guys. 
But there's one that's not a cold brew in the fridge. There's one that's in like a little white thing that's not cold brew. I drink these flat whites and I have to go every morning and it Mm. is like racking up my credit card bill. And now I'm waking (laughs) up with a headache if I don't have coffee. And I wish I'd never started this, but it's so good. I'm addicted. Delicious. Okay, so you have your flat white every day. I have my flat white every morning. That's your secret wellness ritual. Here, like as far as wellness things, I have been trying to do a little bit of intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. And I had just received these supplements called, oh my God. Something. Do they help with intermittent fasting? Do they make you feel full or something? No, but it's, it's actually, it's, they're called gem. G-E-M. And they're basically like, it's almost like a little square of vitamins that are all derived from um, from food sources. Mm. So it kind of gives you the impression of eating food. Like if you were anorexic, you know, it's just like a tiny, <laughs> like little morsel. I know what you're talking thing. about. It's like nutrient. It's like the nutrients you need that's exactly. food derived, but it's not food. Exactly. So I'll have that and like some lipospheric like glutathione mm-hmm. or vitamin C in the morning. And I have that. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have my off-white and then I'll just try to like, you know, stay full to like noon or one. So what does intermittent fasting do for you? It's unclear if it's doing anything for me, but I love to buy into a fad and I find that everybody is talking about intermittent fasting right now. And so I just like, I want to get on board. (laughs) We keep going down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I don't know that it does anything. Uh Uh-huh. But I just want to, I want to like know what the kids are talking about. I listened to a really interesting podcast. Uh, I think the show was called like Science Versus. And they did an episode on intermittent fasting that you should listen to. Mm-hmm. And um, they always sort of like put these theories up and try to like debunk them or prove them. And the intermittent fasting episode was really interesting because everybody that did it really liked it. And they did like lose weight and they did feel great. And oh, I have all this mental clarity and my energy is better. But they they kind of determined that at the end of the day, it's just because you're really eating fewer calories every day. And it's not because you are necessarily like fasting. Right. Like it's if not you're doing you're spacing it out because you're like skipping breakfast. Exactly. Hello. Exactly. Yeah. And so that was like the best conclusion that they could come up with at the end of the day. So like, is it going to help you like feel good and maybe lose a little bit of weight? For sure. But it's not because you're starving yourself for like eight hours. It's literally just because you're eating less food because you are not eating eating as frequently totally like I know I know that the logic behind it has to do with like letting your gut sort of regenerate and you know yeah make time and get in the mood for more food yeah really it like kind of plays into the fact that I don't have that much time in the morning because I'm getting my kids ready for school totally. trying to get out the door trying to get to blue bottle trying to do it all you you're probably know? doing a lot of intermittent fasting without even realizing you're doing intermittent fasting. that's kind of how it was I was just like a little ahead of the intermittent fasting yeah part. you're already doing it I invented it but I I maybe you I, did the I inventor of intermittent fasting right here <laughs> please update my bio I absolutely will your new byline Sarah Riff the inventor of intermittent fasting mm-hmm. maybe that should be the title for, for the show that the episode title um okay so you have two kids yes and the first you told me you delivered with a Mm c-section and the second you had vaginally i did so i you know when i was pregnant with my daughter i went through the um the the courses in advance where you know they you go to a nurse and she tells you about what to expect during delivery and she was like even at one point she was like do you want me to go through the c-section portion and I was like eh, did you know you were gonna have a c-section really at that point no okay so this was your first 
but your first pregnancy. It's my first pregnancy. First. And you were just learning about labor and delivery. Exactly. Okay. I think it's a requisite course mm-hmm. to go to the hospital. Like you've got to meet with a nurse who's going to tell you what to expect. And sure. there's like these incredible drawings and these women are like delivering in unitards, which also seemed like a little bit Whoa. odd to me. But I was like, you know what? I'm here for this and I can do it. You know, and she's yep. like, do you want to go through C-sections? And I was like, not necessary. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm good. I not going to happen. I can push. her out. Yeah. <laughs> I just was like, you know what? Like every single person in this room, we all got here some way, mm-hmm. you know? And like, I can do it. Yeah, I've got it. My body can do it. Yeah. And I kind of relied on the system. I really liked my doctor. And I was like, you know, I didn't have a doula or anything. I was like, my dad is a doctor. I, I kind of like, I trusted the system, mm-hmm. you know? And ultimately what ended up happening was my daughter was 10 days late. I was scheduled to be induced and I went into labor on my own. So I went into the hospital and it was literally like 26 hours of labor and I was stuck at nine centimeters. Mm -hmm. And so they had someone from midwifery, I guess is what it's called, come in, you know, with like a little bit of a different approach to try to see if they could get things moving in Mm -hmm. any way. And ultimately, ultimately... My doctor said, we're going to give you another hour. And, you know, if this doesn't happen, we're going to have to, like, get her out another way. Get that baby out. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you know, I felt really sort of stuck because I didn't know what to do to get my body to cooperate in any other way. Mm -hmm. I was 10 days late already. I was, you know, like, hooked up to all the machines. They're giving you Pitocin. You know, and it's like this sort of cycle that I really hadn't educated myself about at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, like I waited until after, like I had this experience to watch The Business of Being Born, which is I've a seen it. really good documentary. Yeah. But when I watched that, I was like, oh my God, it was everything that they said would happen. It's like, you know, you're in this system. They're giving the baby Pitocin. Yeah. The baby always doesn't like it. But then, you know, there you are. I was a first time to be mother and they're like, your baby doesn't like it. And so in my mind, I don't want to do anything that's going to potentially put my baby at risk, you know? And this is really scary. And you feel really, really nervous. And you just want to do whatever is going to be right and safest for your child. Yeah, of course. So ultimately, it was like an hour later. And they, it was, I have to say, it was really traumatic for me the way that I had a C-section. Because all of a sudden, it was like, you know, I had this plan, I had these like LED candles and this um, playlist, and it was all going to be really, really peaceful. And the journey was going to be beautiful. And I was going to like push out my child gracefully, and then like come to terms with like being a new mom and like have this experience. Mm -hmm. And instead, all of a sudden, it was like all of these people, you know, in scrubs, like strapping me down to a... um, to what is it called the um the pushy thing yeah the pushy thing (laughs) what they don't tell you about having a c-section either is that they have to put you down sort of jesus style like putting putting your arms (gasps) in um in like velcro i understand that sounds like so violating oh it's i have to say it was so violating so suddenly the whole experience changes and you go from you know this like mystical beautiful birthing experience to like being pushed out in a gurney by a lot of people in their scrubs and, you know, they have to increase the epidural to go up higher on your body because they're about to cut you open. And there's just a couple things that happen in that experience that they don't forewarn you about. Although I did previously say that I didn't ask for the C-section information. So (laughs) potentially they had, (laughs) and that was my bad, but I got these violent, violent shakes and, Mm -hmm. um, 
and I didn't know the gender of the baby that I was having. And basically it was just, it was, it was a crazy experience. Um, it was all sort of like made okay by the fact that I was desperate for a little girl and I turned out to have a, a daughter, which, um, felt very like against the odds at that time, because I have three brothers, my husband has a brother and everywhere I went, like boys, everywhere. every unsolicited person was like, do you want me to tell you what you're having? And I was like, probably not, because I'll never see you again, and it doesn't matter, but sure. Uh-huh. You know, and it was like, boy, boy, boy. Anyways, all that to say, I ended up with a C-section. Um, it was a terrible experience, after which uh, my C-section opened. I got a wound seroma, oh my God. which meant that it was infected, and it was just like a huge debacle. It really affected my ability to breastfeed. I didn't really produce much milk. So I didn't anticipate the ways that that would affect my foray into motherhood, which was mm-hmm. like feeling really um, less than in this weird way. Like I just would spiral into these like shame spirals of like, had I been, you know, like on the frontier, I wouldn't have been able to deliver my baby because I wouldn't have been able to get her out. And then if I had been, I wouldn't have been able to feed her. So I just felt like my body like didn't get the memo that I was like transitioning mm-hmm. into becoming a mother because I didn't get to experience this sort of birth that I had wanted to experience. Mm-hmm. So when I got pregnant again, I was like, I'm never doing that again. I'm never having a C-section. And um, and I started interviewing all these doctors other than my doctor because she was like, listen, I'll go on the journey with you, but I don't think you're a candidate for a VBAC, which is something that they they tend not to promote for all the reasons listed in business of being born. You know, they, once you've had a C-section, they'll say that there's an increased risk of uterine rupture. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's not that much more than the risk of uterine rupture during any delivery. Mm-hmm. But something that I heard you say was sort of just about kind of advocating for, you know, for yourself and realizing that you have to know your body, you know, better than anybody else. And I was mm-hmm. like, I can do this. Like, I'm not... I'm not going to adhere to these sort of like archaic sort of reasons just based on hospital procedure and the fact that you guys want to get me kind of in and out in a more manageable time, you know? Mm -hmm. So I met these other doctors um, and ultimately I ended up sticking with my doctor, but I went with this woman who worked on internal scar tissue, which is something that can happen once you have a C-section. And I had it you know my due date set and then my and I was like for sure this is going to go so much differently than my daughter because like I was super active during my second pregnancy I had a toddler so I was really busy I wasn't really thinking about being uncomfortable or you know anything because you're taking care of somebody else so you don't really get to focus on it in the same way that you do the first time where you're like oh my god is that is that a kick you know this time people would be like how how far along are you and you're like uh, like I don't even remember like, uh, you know look down on your size of your belly <laughs> right it's a totally different experience <laughs> so my due date approaches and I went in for my internal checks and she's like yeah you're like you're not effaced you don't have a soft cervix like nothing's happening and I was like oh this can't this can't be you know <laughs> oh god <laughs> and so I was like walking and you know, doing exercise and like mm-hmm. doing these like weird evening primrose suppositories, like uh-huh. every single thing that they had, t- you know, I like drove to the valley to eat the weird salad, everything in the book, everything in the book. And then cut to, you know, my C-section date arrived because she was giving me my due date and then my C-section date. Mm-hmm. And I was like, listen, am I in any danger? Like, is the baby in any danger? And she said, no. And I said, so will you give me a few more days just to see maybe something will happen? 
when she's like, listen, if we're going to do this, let's do it all the way. I'm going to give you until it was like, I'm like 40 weeks pregnant at this point. So I would be 12 days post due date. Um, and then at that point, uh, we have no choice. You got to pop the sunroof, you know? Mm -hmm. So every day, like doing everything that I could, nothing really happening. And so I was doing my fitness. I was doing my positive (laughs) affirmations. I was like, we've got this. Come on. Nothing happened. Cut to, I, I went to lunch the day before the baby was due and I sort of made peace with the fact that like, I'm going to have a C-section, mm-hmm. but I really like put all my efforts there. And yeah, of course, to our earlier conversations, like that's all you can do. You got to like put out your intention and then at some point, you know, move forward. Mm-hmm. And I went in and I was in labor um, and I was scheduled for my C-section and they said, you know, the doctor needs to, to know if she's coming because I was scheduled for a 6.30 a.m. C-section and I was like, but I'm in labor and they checked and I was one centimeter dilated and they were like, it's not that impressive, you know? Let's just like... <laughs> it's not that right. impressive, I was like, I'm Sarah. Sorry, <laughs> sorry my like cervix not is impressive. like not impressive to you. <laughs> and so ultimately, um, you know, she, my doctor was like, I'm not available for the entirety of the day. She had like a personal matter and couldn't come back and she said, I just, I really don't want you to be in the same situation that you were in last time, you know, where you end up kind of trying to get this done all Traumatic. day and nothing happens cut to anyways I just said you know what worst case scenario is now I end up with another c-section which I know and I can manage and the best thing is that you know it all works out for me and so I just was like I'm gonna stick to my guns and my husband was like oh my god here we go you know this like crazy bitch let's just do it I guess (laughs) and I delivered him like an hour and a half later naturally what an hour and a half which I have to say, also, I had this incredible you nurse. You manifested that. I manifested it. I had this incredible nurse at Cedars, and she was like, listen, I've got tricks. I don't know where she was the first time, you know? And she had, <laughs> Not she was like rolling me around and doing all these things. And I had actually gotten a doula this time because I was like, I need someone in there to advocate support, for me sure, yeah. and support. Yeah. But it was awesome. And it was like, it was life-changing, I think, for me physically and also just from a you know, a full circle journey of really wanting to experience that for myself. I think it was so important that I stuck to my guns Mm -hmm. and really believed and pushed back on the system and the health system that told me that that was not really a safe thing for me to do. You know, I love this. What a great story. I, I've never spoken to any woman who's had a C-section and then delivered vaginally. I just assumed that it wasn't a possibility. Um, And so this is really enlightening and I think probably will bring a lot of hope to the people that are listening that have, you know, maybe delivered via C-section, maybe don't want to again. Totally. I mean, listen, it's all a personal choice. And, you know, had I been the sort of person where the situation was like, you're scheduled for a 6 p.m. C-section and you're Mm going to, you know, go to the dry bar and you're going to feel great and they're going to wheel you in. But having gone through like <laughs> yeah, all, the trauma of the, the before, trauma of yeah, I'm before, in labor for 72 hours and then they just I was just getting me. it at all yeah. ends, you know, but like definitely some of my girlfriends are like, so you're just a masochist. So you already had the C-section scar, but you were just like, I gotta like push out the vagina as well. And yeah. I was like, I really, you know, it's an experience that you wanted to have. I think bravo for you for making it I happen. I wanted that experience. I think that's really cool. Um, so we're going to end the episode mm-hmm. by talking about um, the one thing that you can't live with without um with a wellness twist so mine is like i get like nine hours of sleep every night i can't operate unless i sleep forever and ever and so what is yours 
Hmm, that is a good question. Okay, the one thing that I can't live without, I would say hydration, like in every facet and every de- like meaning of the word. So mm-hmm. I really like a lot of body oils. I love to drink water. I love to drink iced tea, as you know, which mm-hmm. can sometimes be dehydrating. So I've got to like <laughs> double up with my water. But I would say definitely lotions and creams and serums. Hydration. Hydration. Hydration for Sarah. Yes. I love that. Um, this was so great. Thank you so much for being so Thank open. Thank you for having me. And sharing your story. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, thanks, you guys, for listening. And tune in next week for a brand new episode.